and I actually apologised for it and Bill Shorten came up to me afterwards and he put his arm around me and he said, no, Jed, that's what we love about you and that's why we need you here. Hello, my name is Matthew Barney-Saltino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Before I begin today, I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I live and record this podcast. This episode of the podcast is being released on Sunday the 31st of May, right in the middle of National Reconciliation Week. The dates for National Reconciliation Week remain the same each year, the 27th of May to the 3rd of June. These dates commemorate two significant milestones in the reconciliation journey, the successful 1967 referendum and the High Court Marbo decision, respectively. I think it is absolutely imperative to take the time to look into these events and understand that although some progress has been made in regards to Indigenous affairs in Australia, that past policy has caused systematic destruction to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and continues to have lasting effects on their lives and outcomes. I watched a film last night called Sweet Country. Based on a true story, it delves into the horrific treatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples by white Australians. It really made me reflect again on the fact that I am living on stolen land, ancient land, sacred land. This makes so many of us uncomfortable. We often ignore this fact because it makes us feel guilty. But this information should not evoke guilt. The feeling we need to search for is empathy. Once we understand what has occurred, we can start to find out how we can create a better future. A better future for all. As we look at the despicable murder of George Floyd, an African-American man at the hands of a white police officer, I see outrage and disgust from most Australians. People ask how that can occur and how messed up America is. This is the correct reaction, but I cannot help notice the hypocrisy there. Australia too has a lot to answer for. We have our own group of people that have lived through a past and present of systematic racism and all forms of trauma and abuse that come with it. It is time to sit with the feelings that arise when discussing these issues and truly reflect on what we are feeling and how we are willing to react. It is much easier to look at the horrors occurring in the distance while ignoring those happening in your own backyard. I really try to avoid pushing my own opinion on anyone and this podcast continues to aim at uniting us rather than dividing us. I believe my comments are based in fact, but that does not mean every non-Aboriginal Australian needs to feel guilt or despair. What it should mean is that we must open up our hearts to the stories and experiences of others and start to make a difference in any way we can to create a better and more united Australia and world. On this note, I am actually really proud to introduce today's guest. Today I am speaking to Jed Carney. Jed Carney is a member of the Australian Labor Party and has served in the Australian Parliament since March 2018 when she was elected in the Batman by-election. The seat was soon renamed after Aboriginal activist and leader William Cooper making Jed the first ever representative of Cooper. She is also the first female Federal Member of Parliament to be elected in the seat. Jed is currently the Shadow Assistant Minister for Skills and the Shadow Assistant Minister for Aged Care. She started her career as a nurse and rose to become Federal Secretary of the Australian Nursing Federation. From 2010, Jed served as the President of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, the peak body of Australia's union movement. I am sure you'll notice the affinity I have for Jed throughout the podcast, but I cannot tell you how authentic and humble, two attributes we do not normally associate with politicians, Jed is. I absolutely loved Jed's willingness to give honest, comprehensive and direct responses during our conversation. We spoke about Jed's upbringing, career, getting into politics, the Australian Labor Party, unionism, policy, values, being a woman, what a post-COVID Australia might look like and much more. 
I do not say this often enough, but thank you so much for listening to Moments of Clarity and helping me to engage with people and topics that inspire me and hopefully help spread ideas and perspectives that make our world a better place. That is definitely enough from me today. So without further delay, I bring you Jed Carney. Jed, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Thank you, Matthew. Very happy to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. Thanks for um, squeezing me in and uh, giving me this time. It's been a, a long time coming. We've chatted for a little bit about, you know, you coming mm-hmm. on and the the COVID-19 situation as well as, you know, bits and pieces along the way that have, have delayed this. But it's actually come at a good time where we're starting to see hopefully some light at the end of the tunnel here. Yeah, well, for people like yourself who are deep thinkers and quite philosophical about life, I think it's been a great time. As we were just discussing before we started this discussion, it's been a great time to have some reflection and deep thinking really about what sort of society we want and how we can each influence the direction here on in because I think COVID-19 has really thrown up for so many of us areas where the country, thinking talking from a federal politician's point of view, where we are pretty strong and robust, those areas that have got huge cracks in it and those things that probably need to be built from scratch. And it's certainly given me time to think about that. And it's really, I think, a a time where we could, if we're lucky and if we do things right, see a lot of change going on from here. So let's hope. These discussions are going to help. So thank you for asking me on. Not a problem. And we'll definitely go into that in depth. But um, just to start us off, who are you, Jed? What do you do? What's your journey? And where are you sitting now? Well, uh, essentially, I am a woman in my 50s who also has had a very, well, who has had a very privileged life in many ways. And I think I often reflect on that. And because of my position and my really, you know, middle-class girl, had a good education and had a great supportive family and I've been very lucky and I know that. So I don't take anything for granted. But I'm one of nine children, big Irish Catholic family, Matthew. Parents were small business people. Dad was a publican and, and so was mum. They ran a pub in, in the city, Melbourne, and we grew up in that pub. And it was a great life. We were very, It was really great. I learned a lot from that. Dad and mum really instilled in us uh, a very strong sense of social justice and uh, that probably comes from that Irish Catholic background. We were taught to respect everybody no matter what and when you're in a working-class suburb and growing up in a working-class pub, you meet a lot of different types of people. All sorts of people came into that hotel from politicians and priests down to, you know, wharfies and dockers and people who worked in the factories right around us in Richmond and Abbotsford and Collingwood. And everybody was treated the same and with a great deal of respect and that's a a big lesson I learned. I learned, interestingly, for a politician, I think, it was really strongly instilled at us to do good or to carry out social justice or even charity without fuss or fanfare or wanting to get any notoriety for it. And so I think those things in my childhood, plus that I had nine brothers and sisters, have really shaped who I am, or eight brothers and sisters. I'm one of nine. My first job after being a failed university student, I dropped out of university because I decided to go nursing. I thought I would be a nurse. And I found a career in nursing that I absolutely adored. I loved it. 
you might find it highly amusing that I followed a boy into nursing. I fell in love with a boy and he said, I'm getting out of this university, Caper Jed. I'm going to go to do nursing. And I'm like, okay, I'll come too. He lasted five minutes and I lasted a lifetime in nursing. So, and the relationship didn't last. But I loved nursing. I, it suited me and I think I was a good nurse. But one thing that nursing opened up for me, apart from a whole range of skills and life skills, I think, was uh, entry into the trade union movement. And I became heavily involved with the Australian Nursing Federation. I became Victorian branch president and worked my way up through the democratic structures of the union and eventually became national secretary of the nurses union, which was the ANF then, it's now the ANMF. And from being secretary of the the federal union, I was asked at one point to run as ACTU president. And so I did. I ran as ACTU president and was successful. So I was ACTU president for nine years. And then again, I got tapped on the shoulder and got asked, would I run for federal politics? And I said how, to Bill Shorten, actually, it was Bill that asked me. And I said, how long have I got to think about it? He said, you've got till nine o'clock tomorrow morning. <laughs> this was like in the evening the day before. So I didn't have long to think about it, but I did jump at the opportunity. And here I am. So that's been my career trajectory. I've had four children in between that, work, shift work, you know, now a grandma and really feeling very lucky to be where I am. Oh, amazing. It was an interesting story, though, with your shift into federal politics. Wasn't mm-hmm. uh, Victoria fighting for you as well? Yes, well, that's true. I was asked to run in the seat of Brunswick, and that's actually what prompted me to leave the ACTU, and I did announce that I would run in Brunswick, and then the opportunity came along to run federally. And given my background in running a a federation, a federal union, my longstanding fight for health justice with regards to protecting Medicare and the public health system, I felt that uh, federally was probably where I was be better suited. I was going to run in a seat where everybody said I would lose. Nobody gave me any chance. Like talk about (laughs) there's actually this, this thing, right, that, you know, you give women the hopeless fights in a bit, you know, very rarely do you see women jettisoned into a 25% margin mm. seat. So I said, okay, I took up this impossible task. And the reason I did that was because, A, I thought federal politics would be a good place. B, I knew that electorate inside out. I spent the majority of my life there. And B, I actually, for some crazy reason, thought I could win. <laughs> so. I took it on, yeah. And uh, as you know, it was a hard fight. It was a fight against the Greens, not the Liberal Party. So it was quite a different type of contest and uh, I gave it my everything. And, I, you know, the people of, was then Batman, it's now Cooper, thank goodness, not Batman anymore, put their faith in me. You know, right up until voting day, people came up to me and said, this is really hard. This is a really hard decision do I vote for you? Do I vote for Alex? You know, right up until as they were walking in the door. So I am forever grateful and will never, ever take the people of Cooper for granted, ever, because having to fight that election back then, which is almost two years to the day. Yeah, it's it's been a little while now. I remember right. it, yeah, yeah. It happening. And I know that Labor were in quite a bit of strife. I think without you 
entering the race there, it would have been no doubt that the Greens would have won that. And that's not just to say, Jed, you, you know, how amazing you are, but, you know, it was part of that and and your vision. But the way that you actually went about that contest, both you and Alex, it wasn't about putting the other down. It was about putting policies forward. It, it's actually what politics mm. should be but is so rarely about. Look, I agree with you, and I think it goes back to what I was saying before about how I grew up, about respect, and I had bucket loads of respect for Alex and her values and what she stood for. I wanted to be in a party that was going to form government ultimately, and I've been in the Labor Party and the Labor movement all my political life, and I really believed that we needed a Labor government in this country, and I still believe that, and hopefully we'll get there. I know you probably can't agree with me on that score, having to take a sort of an apolitical stand, but I really believe that this country is desperately in need of a good Labor government and I want to be part of that. Yeah, look, I know, apolitical, I, I, I think I've given away too much of myself already on this podcast to, uh, to stay on that, on that pathway. But um, <laughs> I definitely want to give everyone the opportunity to speak and have their peace and, and show respect mm-hmm. on all sides of politics. But at the end of the day, it's all about values and, and you can't um, ignore those no matter what position you're in. I, I think it's really tough to. And when speech is stifled based on the work that you do and whatever it might be, you're actually, yeah, it's inauthentic. And I think conversations are sort of damaged. And even what we see with that giant divide between left and right that's occurring and that, that void that's starting to grow between it actually comes from that anonymity about saying things on Twitter rather than over the water cooler at work or whatever, you know. We're not allowed to talk about it in person, look at the face and actually understand who we're talking to. We can disagree, but... We, we still love each other or whatever, but now it's this evil person across the screen and that's it's ruined politics in a lot of ways. What do you think about that? Oh, that's a, a really astute observation, Matthew, and it is an advent of a new world of politics that is not a pleasant place in many ways and that anonymity, as you say, allows people, you're quite right, to say things and postulate and promulgate information that A, we know isn't true, B, is hurtful, and C, is something, as you say, they probably wouldn't be prepared to say to your face. So it takes politics to a whole new level and it's not a nice place. It also, of course, allows a huge influence from people with a lot of money. You look at how Clive Palmer influenced the last election with text messages, his push on social media, I mean, I remember door knocking up in uh, Peter Dutton's seat for Ailey France, who was the wonderful Labor candidate up there in Dixon. And one, I opened the door and one man said to me, oh, you're Labor, I'm, I'm no way known I'm going to vote Labor. And I just said, hang on a minute, can you just explain to me why like, before you slam the door? And he showed me a text message that he got from Clive Palmer to his number saying, you know, Labor's going to take away my ute, Right. And I look in the driveway and there's he's clearly a trade, he's got a big ute. I just looked at him and I said, it's, it's rubbish. Like, we're not going to, no one's going to take away your ute. Oh, yeah, well, I've got a text message to say that you want to do this and that. And slam, the door's gone. And I thought to myself, hmm, we got to find a way to either stop that or be able to counter that. And it's really hard. Hmm. Yeah, so, so you've entered politics and entered that environment and I want to actually go into how you found it 
eventually. I'll, I'll save this question, but I want to go back a little bit to the moment that you went from nursing and being a nurse to actually entering the union movement and actually, you know, standing up for nurses and nurses' rights. What was the the process and the thinking behind that? Was it something that you were pushed to do that you saw a gap or a, an issue somewhere along the line that you wanted to stand up for or was it just an opportunity? How did it happen for you? It was an evolution. It didn't just happen like one minute I'm a nurse and next minute I'm a union official. From the very beginning, I mean, my father taught me that trade unions were an integral part of society and the political system and that if you went to work, you joined a trade union. So I did. And I joined the AMF from the very first day. And that was back in 1985. And for your listeners who are as old as me, they will remember that in 1986, the nurses' union ran a 50-day strike. 50-day strike. Imagine that. Mm. Uh, nurses had never been on strike before, had never down tools, and it was an incredible, incredible campaign to be involved with. For nurses to walk out or to leave patients and the bedside, I can't tell you how huge that was, Matthew, like, on so many levels, and it went for 50 days. So there I was, a brand-new baby nurse, and I was exposed pretty much immediately to the pretty full-on and I guess the hard world of trade unionism and having to make lots of decisions about that. So after that, I became quite interested in unions. Oh, there's so many stories I could tell you about how that happened, you know, from being down at Web Dock during the MUA dispute, you know, being really heavily involved in trade union issues at work. There's, there's one story that I love to tell, though, that really had a massive influence on me. It was kind of a moment of clarity for me. When we had bargain, we had we were having a bargaining, trade, trade union bargaining round, an EBA round, that's what I'm trying to say, when I was working as a nurse. And I was a delegate by this stage, a job rep, and there was an issue. I got a phone call saying, we've got an issue, can you come up to the ward? And when nurses took industrial action, uh, if we didn't go, we didn't always go on strike. In fact, that one strike is the only time in my life we've had a strike. But we, what we do is we close beds and we don't let certain patients come into the hospital and this disrupts the whole system. And this particular ward had decided to stop international fee-paying stations, patients coming in, and would only allow local patients. So this particular surgeon, who was a cardiothoracic surgeon, was furious because he is high fee-paying patients weren't coming into the system. And I could hear him. I got out of the lift on the eighth floor and I could hear this man yelling at the nurses. And I thought, oh, crikey, this is going to be terrible. Anyway, I walked around to the ward and the nurses are there. And they're, oh, thank God you're here, Jed. Thank goodness you deal with this. You deal with him. And they pushed me to the front. And this man looks at me and he says, are you a union rep? Oh, you're the problem. He starts pointing at me loudly. I'm going to have you sacked for this. You will never work in this state again. He's carrying on. Anyway, in the back of my mind is all of this stuff going on, like protected industrial action, this is legal, I'm a registered nurse, he can't have me sacked, blah, blah, blah. And all I could squeak out, though, I was so terrified, I just said to him, I don't think so, <laughs> in this squeaky little voice. And he says, What? What? Of course they can have you sacked and all of those nurses behind you, they'll, they'll be sorry and they'll, have, they'll never work again. And I was just, I don't think so. It's all I could say. It's all that could come out of my mouth. 
Eventually he was so frustrated he turned around and stormed off with steam coming out his collar and, oh, I was so relieved that he was gone and I turned around and I looked at all the nurses behind me and they're all staring at me and as, as if they rehearsed it, they put their hands on their hips and they just said, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> and I never lived it down, right, ever. But on reflection I thought about that moment because I realised that I didn't have to be particularly smart. I didn't have to be an orator. I didn't have to be a bloke and big and burly or a bully. I didn't have to do anything except two things. I had to know I was right and stand the ground. And I remember thinking, hmm, I can do this. And I really took on that union role with with real gusto and I loved it. And I, I became sort of involved then with the union, as I said, as president, all the while still working as a nurse. It was an honorary role and I became deputy director of nursing. So it didn't hold back my career. I was in the public system, thank goodness. So bit by bit, I got more and more confident with that delegate role and the union role. And then I took on a full, and then finally when someone said to me, you know, because I became federal president as well, which is also honorary, So it was kind of a gradual thing that happened. And then ultimately somebody said to me, you should run for Assistant National Secretary. And I went, you reckon? And they said, yeah, there are elections coming up for the union and there was a man running against me. It's a funny thing about nursing is that men seem to, you know, rise to the top even though there's hardly any of them in the (laughs) the industry. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to run. And I got to the election point and I was running this big campaign and the guy pulled out, dropped out of the, the yeah, camp of it. Wow. So I, I got elected. So that was, it was at that point that I had to actually leave nursing. And it didn't feel like a huge leap to me because I'd already been so involved in the union. So when I went in there full time, I, I knew everyone. It was still dealing with the health system. It was a federal office. So it was all very high-level federal policy that we were dealing with mostly, mostly. And it just seemed like a natural progression to me. It wasn't a huge leap. The big leap for me came when I went to the ACTU. Now, that was a big leap. That was completely different, apart from it being a male-dominated domain. And all my life I've been in female-dominated domains, like, you know, all-girls Catholic school, nursing, the AMF, all women. And then suddenly I went and worked in a very, very blokey, male-dominated environment. That was the one thing, but of course I realised that the political world was much more than healthcare and nursing and I had to learn very, very fast about all sorts of things. And when I look back on the nine years in that role at the SETU, it was brilliant and I loved it, but it was hard. It was nine years of a really hard job. There were so many factions and different viewpoints and different personalities and competing interests and you just had to spend the whole time keeping all of these balls in the air and trying to get everyone on the same page to move the movement forward it was a big job in some ways harder than the job I've got now I probably shouldn't say that out loud but (laughs) it's it's kind of true it's certainly I think my career has set me up very well to be an MP. Mm. When you're looking at 
the idea of being right and ready to stand your ground. And that's what started and, and was that initial moment that you said, I can do this. Did that, you know, leave you in good stead as you went along your journey in the ACTU? And what else was there that was on top of that? Obviously, you've got this idea of being right and standing up for that. And that's based in your values. And then you've obviously mm-hmm. got personality and relationships or what was it on the other side mm. that actually allowed you to move up? Because I know that you're not someone that's going to uh, pull strings behind closed doors to make sure someone else loses and, you know, you're going to do it fairly and you're going to do it in a, in a just manner. So how do you do that? Or what was the success or the, the reason for success for you? That's a very good question. And I love how you say that it was values-driven because I am values-driven in everything that I do. And so I've been lucky to have chosen career paths where I can live out my values, like nursing, very caring profession, advocacy, change agent, that whole thing, to the ACTU where, you know, the concepts of solidarity and social justice is what drives everything. Um, So I was very lucky there. I think what I've been lucky, where I've been lucky, Matthew, much like you having had teaching, I think, as part of your life, you will find that the skills that you get from that will set you up for where you go next. For me, being a nurse has taught me oh, so much. It's given me so many skills. I don't even know where to begin, but communication skills are essential. Being able to listen, being able to make decisions quickly and standing by those decisions because if you're a nurse and you've got a life and death situation, you've got a patient bleeding here, you've got to do something now. It's got to be the right thing, hopefully. Living with your decisions, um, even if they perhaps weren't exactly the right ones at the time you made them, you learn all these things as nurses and you couple all that with uh, the fact that, you know, it was drummed into me, that issue of respect as well, and that everybody deserves to be heard and everybody has an opinion that you may not agree with or even like, but... <laughs> You've got to hear them out and give them a give them a platform that stood me in good stead. I think for that job and being able to form relationships, good strong bonds and relationships with all sorts of different people, um, even though they might be on you know slightly different track to you. The hardest thing and the thing that I had to learn at the ACTU was what I said about driving forward, because you can spend a lot of your time just treading water. And I think once you find that thing that unites everybody and pushes everybody forward, it's such an exhilarating and, and fabulous feeling that you're, you're actually making a difference now. I had to learn that that was a hard thing. And I remember finding the whole issue of precarious work and insecure work and the anxiety that that created in people's lives was something that bound everybody like everybody was touched by that everybody whether you were young and caught in casual work whether you were old and forced to go onto a a contract when before you were an employee or or you had kids or you had an uncle or you had a mother or a father somebody was caught up in that and that was for me was a really big issue where I started to move the movement as one and it was a great feeling to learn finally how to get there and do that and I think that We moved a little bit away from that at the last election because I think we thought that Labor was going to win the election and I think a lot of the union campaign became about setting themselves up for what they wanted to achieve with the good Labor government, perhaps rather than pursuing that issue of insecure and the precariat and the things that affect people. 
So it might be interesting now to watch where the labour movement goes with that whole issue of insecure work and securing people's lives because I think it's vitally important, vitally important, and we've got to do something about that. I think it will really change the world. Yeah, and we're seeing that right now. We're, we're in the midst of that with the COVID-19 pandemic hitting our shores and what's happened overseas as well as here that we are, are noticing that there are many people that are left behind, even though the government's done a good job in many areas to support people. There's a lot of people that aren't being supported and a lot of people that have found themselves in, um, that were in sort of precarious positions as it was, realising that they don't actually get the support from the government that they need. And we've also heard this word banded about a lot about essential workers and what that means. And we're realising that so many essential services and jobs are sometimes the least paid or the ones that are least protected where many jobs. And look, as a teacher, I'm fairly lucky, but there are so many people that had to take pay cuts or weren't able to earn money or weren't protected when their shifts were cut because, you know, a business wasn't making money. And the entertainment industry and, you know, asylum seekers or or people that are not citizens or, or permanent residents, you know, so many people missing out on, you know, being valued. That idea of we are going to look after you because you are valued. You are someone that mm-hmm. deserves to be here and actually contributes to this place. So when things go down the gurgler, we're going to prop you up again, which should be the role of government. And that so many people have missed out. And that initial everyone, we're all in this together, you know, support everyone, the essential workers, give people a round of applause. And now we're starting to get as pop towards politics as usual, where it's like, no, if you're not stimulating profits for the big end of town, you're actually not overly essential in the end and yeah, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get on with it. And that's what I'm starting to hear again. Whereas I thought there was a change. I thought something was changing and there was some sort of camaraderie again, but you know, we, we, that, that the attempt was made and, and the battle lines have been drawn again. So this crisis, what have you noticed about that precarious work environment and what is essential versus what is profit making and, you know, what is an economy versus what is a society? Where do you, where do your values sit in that area? That is a massive question, Matthew. We could talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) So where do you start? There is such a thing as society and I think out of this whole crisis that has been one of the most valuable things to be realised Because as you know, famously Maggie Thatcher said there's no such thing as society, which started that whole Hayekian neoliberal push, the small government and the free market to just rip and to drive everything. And 30 years later, is it 30 years, however long it is, here we are where we have in Australia anyway, you know, 40% of the workforce in insecure work whether it's casual, gig economy, part-time contracts, short-term contracts, whatever, people are in insecure work. The lowest paid in our economy are the so-called essential workers now that we're all clapping and loving and saying, great, you know, our aged care workers, nurses, you know, ambos, the posties, the people that have kept the whole society ticking over. Suddenly they're essential and we're giving them a big pat on the back. And it has really highlighted that. And you're right, you you begin to think this is a moment. This is a moment in three or four decades or even half a a century where if ever we were going to realise that we mucked it up, everything, this is it. The one thing I think that has stood the test, curiously, through all of this has been our public health system. 
I mean, the one really robust piece of social infrastructure that we have left stood the test and we are so bloody lucky, so lucky in Australia to have that. I mean, you look at America where they're setting up tents in Central Park in New York to put hospital beds in and mass graves and I think we are very lucky that we still have a public health system the way that we do and our wonderful public education system, you know, the teachers just went home and did it. (laughs) You just did it. And I have four teachers in my family, so I've really watched it and how fabulous it's been to keep that, that going. So we are lucky. And within the Labor Party right now, you might have noticed we are having a lot of discourse about what sort of society we want to come out of this crisis. Anthony Albanese has been saying over and over again, you know, there is such a thing as society, there is a role for government in in securing people's lives and making sure that there is a future for people, there is a role for government in protecting our public services and growing our public services. So for me, it's been really heartwarming to see the Labor Party reconnect with a lot of that. When I was pushing for the secure jobs issue back at the ACTU you know it was very difficult to get anyone in any government of any persuasion to say that government actually creates jobs but if you go back to post-war economy uh, when um, we had you know Kurt and Chifley sort of combined to implement and promote John John Coombs no Nugget Coombs I can't remember his real name isn't that terrible Nugget Coombs I know (laughs) wrote a policy wrote a white paper on Full employment, you know, full employment. Everyone's going to have a job. And that was the mindset in the post-war economy with the Labor government. Everyone who needs a job, we're going to make sure you've got a job. And the government went about creating jobs. And I think we need a similar mindset now. I'm, I'm really interested in this concept of full employment. It's not only about government creating jobs, but it is about that. Um, it's about setting up the framework for investment and industry to come into Australia and employ people. It's a mindset, really, that a government can be interventionist and can create jobs and make sure that people have decent work. And a lot of that is about, and Anthony Albanese has talked about this, it's about employing public servants. So we've got frontline workers again. It's about making sure this infrastructure that's being built all over the country, uh, it's making sure that you can't be a casual worker unless you're a bloody casual worker and that's what you want, you know. If you're doing five days a week for the same company for years, man, you are a permanent employee and you deserve all the protections that come with that. So you can't just have this precarious workforce floating around on the periphery. It's really great, I think, to hear a Labor leader talking about things like that and I'm very excited. I myself am pretty committed to the concept of full employment and I'm starting to have that conversation with various colleagues and people around the traps. So if any of your listeners are interested in that, they can look at an op-ed I wrote in The Age recently and I've been making speeches about it. And Jim Chalmers, the shadow treasurer, is now starting to talk about what a full employment policy might actually look like. So it's really great to think that there's a little bit of a shift and a movement that perhaps you're part of in making people's lives more secure and shoring up a, a society and not just a market. Don't start me on the free market. <laughs> I might, I might have to actually, because <laughs> I've got a follow-up. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and that idea, it's about people. It's about who we connect with. It's about who we cherish, the people that are around us. And whether personally or, or whether as an idea of people, as society, of people interconnected in every way that may not directly affect our lives or may not directly affect 
my day-to-day, but we can see ourselves in their shoes. We can actually wonder what it would be like and actually think about what it would be like to to worry about where your next paycheck's coming from or I've got these skills, I've got I want to work but I can't. And the free market has failed us in so many ways. Yes, you know, overall we talk about GDP and this obsession with GDP growing and the pie getting bigger, but we 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 do see, and as you said, Maggie Thatcher and and, and Ronald Reagan and that era where it was the trickle-down economics model that, you know, if the people at the top are, are making money, then it's going to fall down to the bottom, but we find that that's not correct. The free market also has to be regulated on so many areas so that they're not polluting, you know, acid rain, you know, rivers running green, these sort of things that were going on, the ozone layer de- depleting, and it wasn't until government bodies came together to actually protect these ideals. And I'm almost scared at the way that the conversation is going with this idea of universal basic income, that the idea is that people are going to be given a paycheck, but they're not valued by society anymore, other than being consumers. We want you to spend your money at the shops, but you're not working and you don't actually have value anymore other than being a spending machine. We're going to give you a paycheck when AI takes all the jobs or whatever it might be. And and that's a horrible way to look at it. You know, this idea of full employment, it should be, no, we're in control. Like the market isn't this, you know, we're pawns on a chessboard with the market playing with us. No, we are, should be in control of that chessboard. We should be the ones making decisions. And the free market is a piece on that board that we can decide what to do with. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's it's just really terrifying to think of liberal-minded thinkers and people that, you know, say they care about social justice saying, look, we can't actually make a difference here. What's going to happen is 50% of jobs by 2030 are going to be gone and bad luck. We're going to give you a paycheck so you can still contribute, whereas it should be, why can't we close down a machine or or stop that AI from coming along and actually give people value through work that they have trained for, that they've valued, that they go to work and communicate, share ideas, or else we're just going to be almost programmed to do whatever the programmers tell us to do. And that's a that's a scary and precarious position to be. So I think it's great what the Labor Party are doing, which is tackling this issue and what many, many people are thinking about around the world with young people, especially with protest movements and saying, you know, where is our value? Where do we where do we fit into all these grand plans? Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> so well, do you have any personal stories or stories from people that you've you've seen and come across that you can share this idea of full employment and how important it might be and and maybe even mm. where the where we're heading? Yeah. Matthew, you just said it all so beautifully. I don't even know if I need to follow up really. Because what you said was people drive the economy, right? So this whole concept of the invisible hand is complete bollocks. Am I allowed to say that? I'm you can say anything you want. <laughs> It's rubbish because the economy is about people making decisions. People make decisions every single day that shift and drive and move the economy. It's a vehicle that needs to be driven and you can make decisions and push it in a, in a certain direction like when, you know, Chipley said, okay, we are going to implement this full employment policy. We are going to build things. We are going to employ public servants. We're going to, you know, make sure that, People can go to school and get skills. We're going to support apprentices. And, you know, people say to me, oh, yeah, but, you know, that was easy then. Women weren't in the workforce and, 
we absorbed 2 million migrants during that time. 2 million migrants came to Australia during that full employment policy. Successive Liberal governments maintained it and we had less than 2% unemployment right up pretty much until the whole concept of the free market came in. And, you know, I will never, ever be a, you know, a, a critic of Keating and Hawke, but when they deregulated the economy, floated the dollar, et cetera, they did in some ways realise that there was going to be a, an adverse impact on the economy and they set about building social infrastructure to protect that. So we have Medicare, we had superannuation. I um, mean, you know, they, they tried to predict, if you like, where the gaps were going to be created by this new new economic order, this new world order. And what I've heard Keating say what they didn't predict and something that they couldn't foresee was the casualisation issue of the workforce, which saw the demise of trade union membership and they, they set up enterprise bargaining system, which hasn't really delivered because now employers are just trashing the whole bargain concept. I mean, big employers are. Um, we've seen people thrown back on awards. We've seen people just opt out of enterprise bargaining. It hasn't worked the way that the bargaining system is broken. So a couple of the big institutions, enterprise bargaining and permanent work, have not worked out the way that I think Hawk and Keating foresaw. And, of course, it led Keating famously to say just recently that neoliberalism has run its course. It was a nice experiment. We now need something new. If you, if you hold to that view that you do, clearly, that people drive the economy, just start from that. Okay, we are going to make a decision to a government is going to invest in manufacturing in Australia. It's going to be clean. It's going to be green. It's going to reduce our reliance on global supply chains, which absolutely we saw in the COVID crisis was a disaster. You know, just from simple things like having hand disinfectant to getting ventilators, right? Not good. We couldn't get anything through that. You say we're going to have full employment in a sustainable economy. So you immediately you shift your mind to, to climate and the things that we need to do to ensure that climate change is halted. It might, you know, transferring our grid. A government might actually build a new grid, for example, that would create jobs and would say that we can get everything that we need, all that lovely clean energy that we could produce can actually get fed into the grid effectively and used. Or you say, you know, we're going to have a health system that is built for purpose. And we're going to staff it with nurses and doctors and it's going to be, you know, keep everybody healthy and that you have an education system that is world-class and you can have research and you can actually have a government that makes all these decisions that that's where you're going to drive the economy into areas that create jobs and that you're not just simply going to give tax cuts to corporations in the vain hope that they'll come and invest here in bigger numbers and employ more people, which for 30 years hasn't ever once proved to be true anywhere in the world. So corporate tax cuts and making people wealthier hasn't worked, uh, making a smaller number of people wealthier. It's just driven inequality, as you know. So I really think it's time for an, another sort of more interventionist government approach, and I'm really pleased that we are having those conversations in the Labor Party, particularly around the environment and, uh, you know, we don't call it a Green New Deal, if you like, because in my, from my perspective, yes, we have to have jobs in the sustainable industries, but it's not just about that. It's about the care economy. You know, the care economy is very much a poor cousin. Oh, suddenly it's essential. Right, great. Pat on the back, lovely job. But the care economy is vital, vital 
to everything, you know, whether it's aged care, the NDIS or disability services or healthcare, whether it's Indigenous rangers caring for our environment, our waterways and our rivers and our, and our land. It's, you know, the care economy is, I think, where a huge new focus needs to be developed to make sure that they are well paid, that they're secure jobs and that they are valued, as you said earlier on, and they actually are really valued. And in my view, that is a whole band of our economy where policies need to be focused is on that uh, that care economy. Do you know if you work in nursing or healthcare or aged care, you're not even counted in our productivity? Like, you know, and they say, oh, you know, productivity rate is rising and so they don't even count the care economy in that. It's not even considered as part a vital or important part of the economy to even measure it. Nobody would know how productive we were in the care economy. It's feminised, it's low paid, and, you know, if, we, if you have a government that's prepared to really boost up all of those things, I think we're heading in the right direction. Um, I'm not saying that the Labor Party's all the way there yet, Matthew. We are still having these discussions, but the early signs are really good, I think. You know, then you've got to think about our global interactions, of course, and how we treat migrant workers and our immigration system, which is just a mess at the moment where it just opens our migrants to exploitation. On so many levels, I think where our immigration system's gone wrong is a serious problem that needs to be dealt with, mainly because we're just exploiting temporary workers here in the country. It's shocking. We should have a permanent migration system. Give them a job. Give them the security of knowing they're going to live here, that they can invest in this country and stay. And family reunions and humanitarian rather than, you know, bringing millions and millions of temporary workers in. Closed doors, you know, as a federal politician, as someone that's there as as a representative, but also someone to then bring back information and bring back ideas to to your electorate and then and to spread them around the country as a federal politician as well. How do you move from the obsession with like a policy idea or someone's baby in a policy, you know, that they've worked on and really you know fought for and 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 probably with great intentions. And, and there's all these people with these different little babies that they want to nurse and bring up versus just values. You know, and I, I bang on about this all the time. And this is why I started this podcast, to talk to people about and, and to learn rather than being in my own head and wondering, yeah. oh, I read this yesterday and that was a great idea and then getting something. No, but that contradicts it. Just to go back and actually say, hang on, why am I agreeing with some parts and not mm-hmm. others? It's about really finding, and I'm not a religious person, but finding the human life sacred, isn't it? You know, and finding our living things sacred, our environment sacred, our the animals that we, and I'm not a vegetarian and it's probably so hypocritical of me to say this, but, you know, finding our animals um, sacred and, and even just human creativity, you know, all of these things that should be at the forefront of our minds and if we, we believe all of that, and, and we do, and so many people do, and when you talk to people about it, you know, at the, at the ground level, we do, but then something triggers and it's like, no, that won't work, or that's too hard, or it costs too much money, or it will never happen. On a federal level, behind closed doors, talking to people that 
you know, are making big decisions or have access to people that make big decisions. How often do you get down to that value level? or And how often do you go back and just strip it all bare and say, let's just build from this first brick. Let's just try and figure out this first layer and then we'll go from there and find out what's best. Because it seems like so often we're caught up in let's compare this very, very two very similar policies and fight over that instead of really building from the start. And that's not just a labor thing. This is a universal thing in business and in politics. Absolutely. It should happen. There's no doubt about it. Sometimes when you're in Parliament House and it's frantic and crazy and there's pieces of legislation being passed under your nose and Someone saying, oh, you know, this is just a silly motion to wedge us. Um, you know, this happens all the time. You know, the Greens put up a motion that we can't vote for because it's got this, this and this in it and they put that in it so they knew that we couldn't vote for it and then there's just a wedge and then it's this and then it's that and you get all caught up and, you, you know, well, the Liberals have tacked some hideous thing onto the back of this quite good piece of legislation and then suddenly you can't vote for it because it's got we're going to smash unions as the last <laughs> clause in the, you know. And you get you just get so caught up in the detail of it all that you're quite right. You you forget. You just forget to just take a breath for a minute and just, you know, step back and approach the whole thing from a values proposition. It is hard to keep reminding yourself of that. And I think when I went in, when I was elected, one of the big issues for me was asylum seekers and the rights of asylum seekers and changing Labor Party policy. And the first year, I would say, of my life, I was pretty obsessed with that. And there was this, a couple of things in the Labor Party, you know, fatigue about it. The people that had fought for it for so long just had bashed their heads up against a brick wall and didn't get anywhere. And there was this eternal fear that the Libs would just run a Stop the Boats campaign again and if we mention asylum seekers, we're never going to win another election, right? So I just started at a values base, exactly what you said, you know, who are we? Are we really the people that want to do this? You know, I talked to people in my electorate about it. I, you know, I worked out what was real, what, what am I really going to be able to change, how much of it? And for those bits that I can't change, how will I mitigate them? How do I work the policies around so that those things are, are less detrimental, I guess, to people's lives? And it was really took up a whole year almost of my life. And the, the one real thing I think that helped Matthew was appealing to that value base. I cried once in caucus, which I'm very embarrassed about, <laughs> but... I couldn't talk when I was arguing and I actually apologised for it and Bill Shorten came up to me afterwards and he put his arm around me and he said, no, Jed, that's what we love about you and that's why we need you here. And so that was really lovely for me to think that, you know, me making a fool of myself and getting all blubbery actually did remind people, yeah, okay, this is our value base. And it's not very often, unfortunately, I think, Matthew, that we do do that, that we just go right back to basics because you do get caught up in the everyday thing. So the COVID experience, COVID-19 experience now, one really big silver lining is that we have started again. 
We're really having some great chats, great conversations, debates, doing some really deep thinking in the Labor Party right now about that. And Anthony kick-started it by a speech where he said, you know, there is a society and we know that now because we've depended on each other. We've depended on society, including the government, state government, local government, your next-door neighbour, everybody. Let's start from that value base again and see how we would build. And you don't get time to do that enough. And it's really been refreshing. It's also been angst-ridden for me because now I've got this awful feeling in the pit of my stomach that it's not going to be the best. It's going to be okay, you know, but maybe we're not going to get them. So that always worries me a little bit. But it's also getting to the point you can and then building on that over time. But it's a really, really good point you make and I should make that more often in the party. Let's just stop and think about our values and, you know, let that drive our decision-making because too often it's about rivalries or, you know, I don't know. So thank you for reminding me that. It's, it is important. Oh, it's, it's absolutely so, so easy to get caught up and just worry about what's happening next and what's in front of you rather than just, yeah, sit and reflect. And I think that's what has many people have been offered that time and um, during a time of uncertainty in many ways, but a time of pause and reflection if um, for some, as we said, there's essential workers probably working harder than ever and all sorts of different things happening um, on an individual level. But in its entirety, entirety walking around my community, at the border of Preston and Reservoir there and really talking to people that I've, I've lived here for, no, I've lived here forever, but at this new house for five, six years and, you know, knew a couple of neighbours and since walking my dog every day while teaching, you know, as a break and working from home, that is, you get to meet them all and you get to find out, oh, mm-hmm. your story, you know, oh, you've moved here, you've been here for 30 years or, you know, you're a council worker that's about parks and you know we wanted to talk about the park across the road or you know other people talking about ideas of placemaking and how to have more public spaces in in this area that's really becoming more and more concrete and, and apartments you know instead of more and more parks and uh and greenery in some mm-hmm. some areas i think that's an urban problem across the world but these discussions start to happen and you go actually community and neighbours and being neighbourly and being helpful is beautiful. And that's where we find, mm. instead of being scared with our CCTV cameras and our big that's fences right. and our big dog and, you know, it's like which, mm. what life do we want to live in? Do we want to be rich enough that we can afford to live in a gated community while everyone outside of it is suffering but we've got everything we want or do we want to all maybe make slight sacrifices or you know slight um, accommodations so that we can start lifting everyone up as well and that's obviously a value that I think left side of politics uh, leans towards that government intervention should lead to that so on a on a personal level in that respect the idea of changing our communities and changing our societies should that come from within should that come from what I do as an individual as I leave my house and interact with my neighbours and the people I see on a daily or is it about me getting up and being an activist? Is it about me writing letters to my MP or, or, you know, banging down the door of somewhere to say we need to make change, I'm going to bring everyone along with me? What do you think it takes? And I know an answer would be it takes a little bit of both, but 
you've you've been at both levels, you know, starting off as someone that's caring for an individual patient as a nurse that you've changed someone's life to moving towards not really seeing those faces as much anymore, but changing probably a lot of lives with, you know, a signature or whatever it might be. So how, if I want to, as a, as a, as an individual make a difference and I'm unsure how to do it, what do you suggest is the best place to start? Well, you, you started where you just said, you started wanting to make a difference. And I think it's a bit like a government policy in a way, if you have, you know, as I was talking about before, if you have a policy like, okay, we want full employment, you then plot a way forward that's realistic within the constraints of whatever, whatever you have to work in. So as an individual... Yes, you say to yourself, I want to make a difference. And you have to look at your life, you have to look at your, your constraints and your, you know, your situation. Way back when I was a job rep, I had four babies. I was working shift work. I was, you know, there's, for me, making a difference was pretty much turning up to work every day and just and, and doing the best I could then and there. But, uh, you know, it's all about your own circumstance. Not everybody is going to want to be a politician and not everybody is going to want to, you know, create rallies of 100,000 people that, that get on the telly every day. You just have to find a way that you can do it. I was gave a big speech recently about being an activist to some at Melbourne University and how, you know, not everybody's a leader, but you've got to have a job. You've got to find a job for you that, that is fulfilling and satisfying and adds to that forward movement. And one young woman put her hand up and she was, I don't know, she looked about, I don't know, year 11, 10 or 11, and she said to me, my dad wouldn't let me go to the climate strikes. And I said, oh, okay. She said, I, I really wanted to go and, and everybody gave me a hard time at school because dad wouldn't let me go and they said I should have said this and that and told dad where to get off. But she said, you know, that's not how it works in my family. And, she, and I said, well, you know, not everybody, going to a rally isn't the only way you can make a difference. And she said, you know what, I'm going to study environmental science at university and I'm going to change it that way. And, you know, Dad can't stop me then. So I said, good for you, sister. That's that's great. And so you, you've got to find your niche and your way. Look at you, you're doing podcasts and you're getting political messages out over the airwaves. I mean, I would never dream of doing that. Like I wouldn't even know where to start to do something like that, you know. Even I look at my kids who are teachers and they try to instill values in the kids and people who are job reps at work. Or I remember going to a, un, a, a nurses' union conference once and nurses used to say to me, oh, we don't like to be political. You know, nurses shouldn't be political because we work in the system. And uh, I say, Are you kidding me? You've got to be kidding me, Right. Number one, being a nurse is one of the most political jobs you can ever have because you're an advocate for your patient, you stand up for the healthcare system, you make sure you've got the resources you need. Number two, you're a union member. How political is that? Like being a union member is a really political statement and being a job rep for your union, I said, guys, you are in it up to your eyeballs, right? You are being political, you are making change and you are being activists. So... Just have a little look at your life and see what you do and where you can make a difference and value what you're doing every day. And you saying to yourself, you know, getting out, talking to your neighbours, being a good neighbourly person, even that can help in a way because 
being embedded in your community and being prepared to get out into your community is a, is a statement in itself. So we can't all be brilliant activists. We can't all change the world from that high political level, but sure as hell you can make a difference within your own constraints. There's no doubt about that in my view. Yeah, and I love that you said that the first step is to care and sometimes we've got to learn to care or, or have our eyes opened. And I love when you said that you cried in caucus and you said it was embarrassing, but that that point is where we start. If we don't cry about something or at least feel like crying, why would we want to make a change? If if we don't see, and, and I know that charities work, if you say 2 million people are starving, no one really is moved, but you say, Harry, and you show the photo of Harry, you know, starving in um, a field, gets so many more people to connect with that. And I think it's about oh. telling those personal stories and 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 you obviously did that, you know, sharing. Why does this matter? Actually, Jed, I was going to disagree with you, but you show actual care. You're not just talking about this on a, you know, the stats on a page told me to say this. I saw this on the ground. This person or this situation really affected me and really because of my connection with other humans. So that's a great way to start. And I, I want to go back to the, you said the, the care industry and, and places like nursing and teaching and, you know, mm-hmm. are funded by the public, the ABC funded by mm-hmm. the public. And then the mm-hmm. minute mm-hmm. that you do something that is political or a bit controversial, then you're hounded for it when it is usually the only voice that is actually there to to be there for the people because most other voices are there for the dollar behind the scenes, you know, so, and that's a bit of my politics coming out there. But, you know, the if something's on Channel 10 or Channel 7 or, you know, on a commercial radio, you sometimes have to wonder where that, what the purpose is or what the intention is behind that. And I think people that care and try to save lives and spend days, you know, wiping human matter off them as a nurse or as an aged care worker or as anything, you know, for, for almost for little pay compared to what possibly they could be earning in another industry. And same with teachers when you've got kids crying or swearing at you or whatever it might be, or police, you know, all these care industries or industries of essential industries, let's put it that way, you have to then you have to close your mouth and you've got to be like, no, no, don't say anything because we pay you. So the minute that you're going to um, speak up, we can take that away. And you said that from the start with that doctor, that specialist doctor at the top saying that I'm going to sack you and, you know, you'll never work in this state again. And it's like, no, the minute that we start to to drop our heads and to say, I'm going to listen to that, I'm going to close my mouth, is the minute that we we won't be able to ever open our mouth again. And the casualization of the workforce that you mentioned stops people connecting and being part of that team that's saying, no, all for one and one for all. So... We, we are in a precarious position. What would something that you'd like to, to offer on that? I know that you're talking about full employment and, and ensuring that society is valued and people within that society is valued and union, unionism is really important. It was a, probably a point that I wanted to go into earlier, but what is unionism? Like let's go back to the base level. What does a union do? What does it mean and why is it important and why should we be advocating for it rather than being scared of it? Well, for me, trade unionism is, is one of, embodies one of the basic values, if you like, that drives me, and that is solidarity. And it's about standing shoulder to shoulder for a common benefit, if you like. 
It's about the power of the collective. It's about balance because, you know, I had this argument with Jared Henderson once. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's a, he's a right-wing, very conservative right-wing commentator. He took me on once to say, you know, why do we have all these rules around minimum wages and why do we have enterprise bargaining and why do we have this? And a man should just be able to bargain what he wants for his own labour, you know, he should be able to do his... Because it doesn't work like that, right? You know, it doesn't. There's no power in being an individual walking into a corporation and saying, I want to get paid this much, like unless you're at the, you know, very, very high end of of the spectrum and in high demand. And if you're doing a job that there's a lot of people doing, they're not going to pay you. Like thanks to unions in Australia, we have a fantastic minimum wage. It's thanks to unions in Australia through the power of the collective, like standing together and saying, yeah, we're going to take this on as a group, that we have four weeks annual leave for everybody. In America, that is a dream, right? A dream. They can't believe it when you tell them you've got four weeks annual leave. Even in Europe where two weeks is two or three weeks, or you might work your way up to four weeks if you've been in a workplace for a long time. You know, thanks to unions that we have occupational health and safety standards in this country and unions are incredibly important. And I know when you say to people, what do you think about when you think about unions, people will say, oh, you probably think about strikes and CFMEU and, you know, big bullies and whatever. Well, I come from the biggest union in the country, which is the nurses' union, you know, 250,000 members. It's a huge, wonderful union that is the guardian of our craft and is the setter of standards and, you know, has, has driven excellent health outcomes in this country for decades. So, you know, trade unions are an incredibly important part of, the, of society and without them, I mean, you only have to go and look in countries like in Asia to see what happens when you don't have a robust trade union movement or South America or Africa where you get shot if you're a trade unionist, you know. People die around the world to form trade unions. They die. Mm. I kid you not. And here in Australia, you know, people don't join. <laughs> I've never understood it. Like I just I can't understand why you wouldn't be in your union. And uh, people say, oh, you know, I was in the union once and they didn't look after me they didn't do their best by me. Well, the the problem is a union has constrained resources as well. The more people that are in the union, the bigger and stronger and more able they are to actually help people with every everything they need. So unions, unions are so important. For me, they're as important as, as any political structure that we have in the country. And you think people say, oh, but they're irrelevant or they, you know, they don't, they're shrinking and nobody joins a union anymore. Well, there's still nearly 2 million people in the trade unions in Australia right now. Sure, it's about, what, just under 20%, under a fifth of the workforce. But you tell me another social or political organisation that has nearly 2 million people, paid up members. Mm. You can't. Not the IPA, thank you very much. Not the Liberal Party, not not the Labor Party, not the, not the Greens, none of the political institutions have any, you know, that not, not Greenpeace or WWF, none of them. But the trade union movement has 2 million paid up 
members. And to say that they are irrelevant or that they don't they don't, shouldn't have a say in the political process is ridiculous. Of course they should. You know, we, we have a, a fabulous industrial base in this country. No other country has an award system like we do. Like we're so lucky to have that as a social safety net. We have national employment standards that are the envy of the world. All of that is thanks to trade unions and that, that whole concept of solidarity and collectivism uh, changes the world. That's how you change the world is through collective action. And you look at, you know, the anti-Vietnam collectivism the, or the activities, activism around that. You look at anti-apartheid in South Africa. You look at any of the great social movements of the world. It's all been based on collectivism and solidarity. And that's at the heart of trade unionism. So I just think they're incredibly important, incredibly important. And I'm proud, I am so proud to say that I came out of the trade union movement and I was, I'll be proud of that till the day I die. Hmm. Your opening address at Parliament when you, when you were first elected really focused on the Indigenous affairs and, and especially about the name Batman. And hmm. one of the first steps that you made was changing that to Cooper, which was much more defined what we should be actually trying to achieve you know, when we look at these people that we aspire to, well, the people that we look up to, from someone like John Batman to someone like William Cooper, what inspired you to do that? And are you proud of that moment? I am proud of it, Matthew, but I can't claim all responsibility for it. Again, it was a very much a group effort and there were lots of people campaigning to change the name of Batman Actually, we really wanted, we were after Wonga because um, he was a Wurundjeri man and, of course, Batman was on Wurundjeri lands. But very, very proud to have William Cooper, a great Aboriginal activist. Your listeners may not know, but he was an amazing man in the middle of last century. He uh, wanted a voice, a representation in Parliament. He wrote to the King and asked for self-determination for Aboriginal people, he established, pretty much established NAIDOC Week, what we know now as NAIDOC Week. He was a founding member of the Aboriginal Advancement League. He is a proud Yorta Yorta man, which is up from around Shepparton Way. He actually was one of the only people in the entire world to protest after that, that dreadful crystal marked with the night in when Nazi Germany smashed all the windows and went on basically pogrom raids. And he started a petition against the Nazi government here in Australia and got 1,800 signatures or something and had a, had a march to the German embassy to demand change. Like, he was extraordinary and he's still revered beyond, beyond belief by the Jewish community, not only in Australia but right around the world because of what he did then. As an Aboriginal man, he wasn't a Jewish man, he was an Aboriginal man and he really was an amazing person. So to be named after William Cooper is such an honour and to be the first member for Cooper, I'm very proud. I think he would have been pretty chuffed that the Aboriginal Advancement League is in the seat and there's a lot of connections with our First Nations people there. 
when I uh, was elected, first elected, I became aware of this campaign to change the name and I started to look deeply into it. The Darabin City Council and the Mayor worked very hard on it as well. There were lots of groups working on this. And I started to look into John Batman and I knew he wasn't a pleasant man, but uh, the more I looked into it, the more I realised that he was even abhorred by his peers. So you couldn't just say, oh, that was the time, you know, sure, he you know, wasn't very nice to Aborigines, but nobody was back then, you know. No, 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 this man went beyond that. This man was not liked even back then for for his treatment of Aboriginal people. So I thought, yep, this is something that I can really support, this campaign. And so, yes, you're right, I spoke about it in my first speech. I went along to hearings by the AEC. Um, We got knocked back the first time. We appealed that. We went back again. And I remember going to a hearing and sitting there and uh, there were five white middle-aged men all in suits and ties. And I remember I put out one little tweet that said, oh, we've got no hope. <laughs> Look at this. And I, I think I might have taken a picture of the paddle. And um, I think that caused great offence. That tweet went a little bit viral. I didn't mean it to, but it went a little bit viral. No offence, because I know there's some uh, wonderful white men like yourselves who are fabulous and progressive. But looking at this panel, I just thought, oh, Lord, you know, these looks, they look so conservative. But lo and behold, I was in Parliament House and I got a phone call from the Labor Party lawyer who was helping us actually with this. And he rang me and he said, I hope you're sitting down, Jed. And I said, why? He said, because we've got to have a name change and it's going to be William Cooper. And I burst into tears. I was so happy. And I rang Uncle Phil Cooper, who lives in our seat, and who is an elder, an Aboriginal elder, and he's directly related to William Cooper. And I rang him and said, oh, guess what? And uh, it was a really, really great moment. But as I said, I can't take credit for that I was just one person in a number of people including of course wonderful Aboriginal organizations who were arguing for that so it was a great moment in history and I'm very proud of it. As a woman in a industry that is dominated by those sort of men in suits those middle-aged men in suits in many ways and (laughs) not just politics but many many of the organizations that are now that have some power or, or most of the power, how does it feel to, and what challenges have you faced as a woman along the journey? Is it intrinsic or systemic challenges or has there been personal challenges there as well? Both. Uh, there is inherent bias. Even the most wonderful men I know that I've worked with just can't help it. <laughs> just, and, you know, at the ACTU I learned very, very quickly that uh, if I didn't bang on doors, if I didn't go into meetings, if I didn't find out, people wouldn't even think to invite me to meetings. Like it was really frustrating and I know it wasn't sort of done on purpose but all those things that you hear women talk about where you would say something at a meeting and nobody heard you and then five minutes later a fellow would, a guy would say exactly the same thing and everyone would go, oh, great idea, great idea, you know. And it was so frustrating. Or I would sit in a meeting that I was chairing, you know, like maybe ACT executive where 80% of the people in that room are men and the other 20% are women. And, you know, as the chair, I used to actually, I used to text, speak up, say something about this, you know, (laughs) to to the women in the room because it, it was just so hard to sort of be heard. But 
I, I learned to call that out. I learned to speak up. I learned to say, hey, thanks, good idea, but I did say that 10 minutes ago. Did I not? And I would look at everyone in the room, you know. It kind of got to the point where one of the repeat offenders of this would go to say something and he'd look at me and say, did you just say this? Because <laughs> even when I had it, he started to double think himself and that was good for me, you know. I thought, yeah, that's good. Um, I was a great supporter of affirmative action. I really think Labor Party has done the right thing there with affirmative action. One particular example that was really stark for me was that I was at a conference, a superannuation conference, and there were all these men being interviewed and they were all CEOs of banks, right? They were all men. And there was a woman interviewing them and she said, what do you think about this um, affirmative action business, you know, and um, in promoting women and da 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 you know, because they all said, oh, it's rubbish, merit, 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 you know, the whole thing. And one, one guy, I can't even remember who it was, but he said, you know what, I think there's something in it because, you know, when I go to employ someone, I employ someone that I know, that I play golf with, that I drink with, that I, you know, have come across in other meetings or that I think looks a bit like me, and that's always a bloke. He said it would never, I never come across women in my business world and it would never occur to me to employ a woman. And he said, so I wouldn't mind someone just saying you've got to do it because then it would make me go out and do it. And I thought, you know, of five men, one man had the insight to say, I think there's something in this. You know, he didn't say he agreed with it entirely, but he he actually sat back and thought about it. And that is the hard thing, you know, for women to break in into that high level echelon. But of course, it isn't all about Matthew. It isn't all about being a CEO. That's important. I think having women in leadership roles is incredibly important. And I take my hat off to the women who've been able to do that. And uh, some big firms, as you would know, like some of the big banks now and PricewaterhouseCoopers, et cetera, they actually have affirmative action policies now where they have to have 40% of their leadership team women and, you know, they're actually really pushing that. But I think the thing that we forget about is that what we were talking about before with feminised industries is that women are low paid, they are in casual work, they are in the, you know, in the, that care sector that we know is so undervalued. And that as a society, it's not just about getting women into leadership roles, important, but it's actually also about raising up that whole feminised workforce and sector and starting to value that and valuing the care that women do at home still. Women still do the majority of the housework and child rearing. So I think we can't forget that. I know that there are workplaces that still don't have women's toilets, for example in male-dominated workforces, if you happen to be a, a female sparky on a work site, there may not be a toilet for you, you know. Some places still don't let pregnant women sit down on a stool if they can to do their job or, you know, they don't have decent maternity leave. They, there's still a lot in our society that, yeah, means that women aren't equal in any way. We still have a gender pay gap of what is it? So it's 16% or 15% gender pay gap. I could talk about this forever. There is still very much a gender bias right across all of society and uh, we're not there yet. We've come a long way. Don't get me wrong. The sisterhood's done a good job. We've come a long way, but we're not there yet. And I domestic think, violence. Mm, that into. 
Yeah, which is um, really coming to prominence now with some of the news mm. on that front, which is really mm. shocking and heartbreaking. And it's beyond heartbreaking. It's it's unacceptable, isn't it? And heartbreaking is almost giving it a, like, we'll bleed for it in our hearts, but we'll stop there. It's actually unacceptable. Is, One of the yeah. big can at the ACTU was the Paid Family and Domestic Violence League. And, I, you know, I ran this for 10 years. I campaigned for this with a wonderful woman called Ludo McFerrin. Anyone out there, just Google Ludo. She is amazing, Ludo McFerrin. And uh, she and I campaigned for paid family and domestic violence leave for years and years. And I think, you know, the, the important thing about that is because people say, oh, you know, we don't want to call it domestic violence leave. Even supporters would say, why don't we just call it special leave, you know. I'd say, no, because nobody talks about it. It's always hidden and shoved under the door and it's squished down and it's like a taboo. It is one of the last taboos, if you like, of societies. You don't talk about domestic violence. No, we wanted it plastered on the wall that you can get paid leave if you are suffering from family or domestic violence. You can go and talk to your boss about it. You can tell the world. It's nothing to be ashamed of, you know. We can help you. Uh, that was a one of my, I think, one of the things that I am most proud of is starting that big conversation, that debate around domestic violence in the trade union movement. I know I've taken so much of your time here and I'm so grateful for the uh, the time that I've taken. I've got two quick questions to ask you. Mm-hmm. The first mm-hmm. one is a on a personal level, you know, you are... Highly sought after, busy. You've got so much on the go at all times. You're, you've been in these roles for a long time now. What have you learned over your journey that helps you stay sane? <laughs> what have you learned that has helped your well-being and, and your connection to people that you may not get to spend as much time as or with as you'd like? What What do you do to ensure that you are remaining on top of things with your own well-being as well as with the relationships yeah. you want to keep? Uh, that's a good question because... When you do have busy jobs and we all have busy lives, you can push that back and say, oh, you know, I can wait to the weekend and then the weekend gets busy and you didn't see your kids. And a long time ago I learned, I know this might sound a shock to some of your listeners, but I schedule it in, right? I put it in. It's in the diary. Nobody can change it. I'm having dinner with the kids because I have adult children now, you see, dinner with the kids, Fridays I have my babies, I have my grandchildren, you know, and I get really annoyed if you can't, if I can't change that. I have Friday afternoons where I spend with the babies, just me and them. And I found that scheduling it in like that is really important because they're busy too. They're all working, they've got their lives and their partners and and so it helps with them too. And I bring them all and say, right, this Saturday, it's all in my place and everybody's there and we do it and it's lovely. And the other thing I do is when I go to bed pretty much every night, I just do a little mental check-in on each of them. You know, did I talk to Elizabeth today? Um, Did I follow up that with Brian? What was the last conversation I had with Bridget? How's Alex? You know, blah, blah. I just do a little mental thing and then if something's missing or I think, oh, I'm meant to do that, then I make sure I follow up the next day and I just have that little mental connection. So that's that's kind of how we've worked it with the kids and I think it works really well with my poor, long-suffering partner. <laughs> I don't think he's quite so lucky even though I live with him. 
he gets all my crankiness and all my bad moods and generally the way he deals with that is, you know, he does all the cooking and the cleaning. He's a wonderful human being and I come in and, you know, he'll pour a glass of wine and that's probably the first thing here. Fluffy glass of wine. I shouldn't rely on drugs, I know, but I must say I do like a glass of wine. I can't help it. It's my preferred drug. And we, we try to make sure that we have time over that wine time to just sort of debrief, talk, a bit like Kath and Kim. We have that <laughs> wine time. Yes. And it works really, really well. But he really, I, I sometimes think to myself I need to be nicer <laughs> to my poor partner. But, uh, yeah, he's a great support to me, really fabulous mentor, a lovely man. I'm lucky. My last question is the name of this podcast, which is Moments of Clarity. And I know you mentioned a moment of clarity earlier in the conversation when you said that moment that you realised that that you can make a difference, you have a voice, that you are ready to basically, you know, commit yourself to being a voice for others and helping others. What would you say has been the most recent moment of clarity, either through this conversation, through something you're doing at the moment, through the COVID crisis? What, what's something that has come to mind as a moment of clarity for you right now? Oh, Matthew, a moment of clarity in, in the, recent, the recent times. Well, uh, there's so much, like there's been so much politically. Watching, you know, recently watching the Andrews government he basically is running a government that is a big spending, is creating jobs, is investing in healthcare. They're really being that government, right? And people embraced it. People loved it. And they, they said, yeah, governments can do that. And I know we live in the People's Republic of Victoria, don't get me wrong, right? We are all enlightened and wonderful down here. (laughs) But, you know, at the last election when he was elected with that massive majority, it was like, yeah, you know, people still do believe in that and they still like that and they still want that. If you put it in front of them and show them that you can have it and you 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 can have that. That was a real moment of clarity for me when Dan Andrews won that last election. It was really energising for me, even though when I'm at a federal level, it was energising. But then again, I had another moment of clarity where I was talking to some small business owners, manufacturers actually, in my own electorate, and one guy said to me, look, about this China stuff, right? And I said, yeah, I really think Trump's got it right. And, you know, we've got to be a bit more, a bit bolshier like Trump and we just got to, you know, we got to tell them, we got to tell them. And I just, that was a bit of a shock to me to sort of think, yep, Jed, not everyone thinks like you. We are still a very diverse Mm. place and you have to, it really made me remember that uh, there's a lot of, you know, differences still amongst us and that we don't all think the same. We get in a bit of that bubble, everybody talks about it, we get in that bubble. So. It, is, it, it was really a moment of clarity for me that I've still got a lot of work to do and that not everybody thinks like me, although I'd like to think that in my own electorate. So you have to try to be able to communicate with him. I have, you know, and I talked to him and I said, well, why don't you like China and what do you think the problem is? And basically came down to the fact that all our exports and all our, you know, our supply chains come through China and that's 
I said, yeah, but that's not China's fault. You know, even if that was America, we wouldn't like it. It wouldn't be a good thing. Mm. And it kind of went, mm, yeah, okay, I see what you're saying, you know. So there's still an awful lot of conversations to be had. And, you know, and you, you were talking earlier about the whole thing about social media and how hard it is to combat that and how it's changed the face of how we send political messaging for the worse, I think, not for the better. I still very much rely on face-to-face. So even though we have a social media strategy and, yes, I've got a social media presence, I reckon you win people over by looking them in the eye, sitting down with them in a room. I will go to people's lounge rooms, their kitchens, their workplace. I'll engage on a tram stop if anybody wants to. I will go to train stations just to say hello to people as they're getting on a train because that face-to-face is so powerful and that human connection, I think that's what changes things. So there's still a moment of clarity for me in that, yes, I still have lots of conversations to be had and uh, that's good in a way. It'll keep me busy. Amazing, and it, and it ties with our theme of people being at the forefront of everything and, and that personal relationship, yeah. Yeah, it is important. Thank you so much, Jed. I've appreciated these these two hours together and, and you know, no three-word slogans here. We've really got to the bottom of, well, not to the bottom, but we've really unpacked so much. And um, for you to do that and do that, you know, honestly and openly and, and give so much of your time but also your mind and, and your journey is something that I really appreciate and I know that our listeners will too. So thank you for that. And I'm really, really happy and proud to have you representing me and, and the community. Um, thank you. It's, it's awesome. So thank you. Thanks, Matthew. And thanks for inviting me on and you're doing great work. Really good. Cheers. Thank appreciate you. that. Thank you. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family, and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast, or on Twitter at BarneyMOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney, and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.